Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. In this episode, we will discuss one of the darkest and most infamous chapters of the Civil War in North Alabama, one which was widely publicized across the country and around the world, and marked a general shift in the nation's mentality about the character of the war, its objectives, the government's policy regarding the seceded states, and the nature of the warfare itself. It is not necessarily a well-known event today. There isn't an enormous amount written about the shocking depredations that were committed in the city of Athens by soldiers of the Army of the Ohio. We will discuss the facts as they were understood at the time, using, as with other events we've explored, surviving contemporary sources from the official records of the War of the Rebellion, testimony to the SCC, and newspaper accounts. I will also supplement these primary sources with a more contemporary scholarly work called From Conciliation to Conquest by George C. Bradley and Richard L. Dolan, which gives a detailed analysis of, quote, the sack of Athens and the court-martial of Colonel John B. Turchin, end quote. I feel the need to express that it is never my first choice to cite contemporary 21st century sources in my research, and I certainly give preference to 19th century sources wherever I can. I will do my best to flag passages as we come to them which originate in this modern work of scholarship, as opposed to the primary 19th century sources I seek to highlight, to avoid placing them on equal footing. As we have already seen, the Army of the Ohio, specifically the 3rd Division, commanded by Brigadier General O.M. Mitchell, spearheaded out of Middle Tennessee into North Alabama in the middle of April 1862, capturing the city of Huntsville, and began attempting to solidify their incursion into the Tennessee Valley and the very heart of the Confederacy. This intrepid advance notwithstanding, actually holding on to their foothold, proved to be a slippery challenge, as we've already seen. Roving rebel bands wreaked havoc upon the scattered federal forces, disrupting lines of communication, transportation, and supply. Such guerrilla activity also had the critical effect of blurring the distinction between civilians and combatants, as pointed out in From Conciliation to Conquest. Quote, the fact that the rebels waged a guerrilla campaign in central Tennessee made it all the more difficult to differentiate loyal or neutral citizens of the South from rebels and rebel sympathizers, or to expect Union soldiers to restrain themselves. Rather than meeting rebel soldiers against whom they could carry on a conventional military campaign, Mitchell's soldiers instead encountered pocket after pocket of partisan fighters, men who would much sooner terrorize their neighbors than face soldiers on a field of battle. As partisans and guerrillas, those men fought by other rules, by a code that both allowed and invited reprisal. End quote. As the weeks wore on, the loss of momentum and the constant harassment from the rebels began to grate on the nerves of the Union forces, most of whom were volunteers, untrained in the rigid discipline of the reg regular army, and who enlisted in the heady patriotic days of the war's opening act, eager to whip the rebels. Frustration and flaring tempers would soon boil over into lawless and violent acts of indiscipline, and would damage the credibility and morale of the Union troops as a force for justice, and bring into question whether the erring sister states could, in fact, be gently led back into the fold of the Union. 
the federal government's policy regarding the seceded states was heretofore known as conciliation, which I previously was mispronouncing as consolation. This policy was outlined in Lincoln's first inaugural address. As you may remember, he assured the citizens of the seceded southern states that he and his administration had no designs to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it already existed, nor would they make war indiscriminately against southern civilians. There was a certain belief that only a small group of ringleaders from the social elite, wealthy slaveholders and politicians, were really to blame for secession. Everyone else, having been duped and misled into supporting the rebellion, might repatriate and prove their loyalty, if only given the opportunity, by the law-upholding presence of the Federal Army. Furthermore, at that point in the war, before the firing on Fort Sumter, Lincoln's objective was to keep any other states from leaving the Union. The border states, especially where slavery was legal, such as Kentucky, Maryland, or Missouri, were crucial to retain in the Union. Keeping slavery off the table for the time being was essential for appeasing them. In light of this belief, in tandem with the Lincoln administration's policy as outlined in the first inaugural, high-ranking military leaders, including General Buell, wanted to interfere as little as possible with the everyday lives of Southern citizens, regardless of their politics, and merely target the rebels openly in arms against the government. Slavery and slaveholding were to be interfered with as little as possible. You may remember instances we explored last time when enslaved people were returned to their so-called masters, having been pressed into the service of the Federal Army to labor upon bridges and fortifications. General Buell himself was a slaveholder by virtue of his marriage to the daughter of a Kentucky planter. He was perhaps more steeped in the culture of slaveholding than any other Federal commander in the Western theater. This was in stark contrast to an average Midwestern volunteer in his army who was likely to regard slavery and slaveholders in a hostile light, even if their attitudes towards enslaved people were less than benevolent or simply racist. Slaveholding had split the nation and precipitated the treason of secession, and it was not to be coddled. As Reed Mitchell points out in his book, Civil War Soldiers, quote, the fear that the slaveocracy of the South would undermine Republican institutions was strong in the North before the war. Secession appeared to confirm Northern fears about the extreme lengths to which the slave owners would go. Slaveholders had disrupted the Union. They were perceived as self-styled aristocrats, marring a democratic society. To say that men would not go to war to end slavery is not the same as saying they desired its perpetuity. End quote. You may remember as well, when the first federal forces landed in Florence aboard gunboats in February 1862, right after the fall of Fort Henry, Lieutenant Commander Phelps assured the nervous delegation of citizens that, quote, we were neither ruffians nor savages, and that we were there to protect them from violence and to enforce the law, end quote. The rebellion was illegal, and the army was meant to enforce the laws of the United States. Yet, not even three months later, at Athens, Alabama, 40 miles from Florence, that purpose would be overturned as soldiers of the United States descended into lawlessness and wanton aggression against the civilian population, specifically the 19th Illinois Regiment, under command of a Russian-born colonel named Turchin. 
Ivan Vasilyevich Turchinov was born in 1822 in a border region of the Russian Empire near the Black Sea. After immigrating to the United States in 1856, his name was anglicized to John Basil Turchin, which is how he is most commonly known. As a Russian subject, he had been a professional soldier and participated in the suppression of another rebellion, the Russian intervention in the Hungarian Revolution of 1848. He, as a career soldier, had a very distinct perspective on the rebellion, the policy of conciliation, and the rampant nepotism behind the appointments to the officer corps of the army. In 1865, before the war had even come to a close, he published a memoir of sorts called Military Rambles, in which he vociferously expressed his own opinions regarding the failure of the government's war policy and the ineptitude of his fellow commanders. His remarks shed light upon his possible psychological motivations at Athens, where he turned a blind eye to his rampaging regiment. He began by explaining his perspective on the policy of conciliation, namely how misguided and foolish it was, considering the hostility with which he regarded the seceded Southerners. Quote, All that, to a man of sense, was sufficiently indicative that the Southerner would be implacable in civil war, supreme in hatred, and that he would risk anything to injure his enemy. But our military commanders in the beginning of this war had not the perspicacity enough to see it. Conciliation, protection, and friendship to the enemies was their policy." End quote. He then criticized the policy of conciliation and the explicit protection granted to southern slaveholders, provided they weren't openly aiding the rebellion, and described the subsequent shift as the war dragged on and hostility to the slaveholding confederacy inadvertently produced abolitionists in the army ranks. Quote, an officer who would have dared to proclaim that the Negroes, being a source of wealth to the enemy, and the feeders of his army, should be taken from him and put into our own army as teamsters and cooks and laborers, and even armed and used as soldiers to kill off their rebellious masters, was considered an incendiary and dangerous member of the community, and was not allowed to remain in the army. But when these protectors of chattel property have been unmercifully whipped by the rebels, when many of them have been maimed and mutilated by their implacable enemy, they became abolitionists. End quote. Turchin, just like so many others, has virtually no sympathy to the plight of the black men, women, and children who were enslaved. His viewpoint essentially was that if the North did not confiscate them as a resource to the South, the rebels would use them instead to injure the Union either as laborers or as soldiers. His sentiments about black people are quite shocking and virulently racist. I will not offer any direct quotations to prove this. Suffice to say, he dehumanizes them by comparing them to dogs and monkeys, and uses derogatory racial epithets. Despite his hateful attitudes towards people of color, he nevertheless possessed a startling clarity of insight about the war before it had even ended, to a degree usually not seen unless through the hindsight of historians. He understood the naive misconception that merely occupying the South did not equal victory for the Union armies. 
Quote, one idea possessed their minds, that it was a good idea to take possession of as much southern territory as possible without fighting if they could help it. They were under the impression that, if a certain territory were overrun by an army, it may therefore be considered as permanently conquered, forgetting that war is a chess play, and that one false move throws a today triumphant army away back tomorrow. End quote. And he also understood that besieging cities was ultimately misdirected energy, that the true power center of the Confederacy was the rebel army, that all efforts and resources should be directed against the Confederate military to assure the downfall of the rebellion. Only months after publishing his work, General Grant would prove that hypothesis quite correct when General Lee's surrender at Appomattox heralded the downfall of the Confederacy. Quote, there is not a point in the whole Confederacy that can be considered as of vital importance to the South. If Vienna be taken by an invading army, the whole of Austria would be at the feet of the conqueror. If Berlin be taken, Prussia would be blotted from the map. But what would have been the consequence of our taking Richmond? Morally, we could do something with it, materially almost nothing. But the Confederacy, having no capital, no fortresses, no commercial cities, has a large, well-organized, and desperate army. That army can make any point important by its mere occupation. The whole strength of the Confederacy is in her army and in her army alone. That army should have been the objective point of all of our operations and nothing else." End quote. In many ways, military rambles was a chance for Turchin to set the record straight, so to speak, regarding the corruption and incompetence he witnessed in the army, and the ways he was personally affronted by it. He was enormously critical of his superiors, who were appointed as a reward for political favors, who had no expertise whatsoever in military matters. Quote, no potentate of our time would have dared to commit himself by promoting a civilian over the head of a good and old officer of the army, but our wiseacres made the appointments and promotions in the army so arbitrary, so outrageously offensive to the honor of arms, that a military man of sense and self-respect lost every regard for the rank and, disgusted, longed to get out of the army." End quote. His comments are quite illuminating why a professional old-world soldier, resentful of the nepotism and ineptitude he saw in his superiors, and critical of the official policy of conciliation, could be responsible for a regiment that would ultimately behave more like a roving band of thieves and pillagers than the emissaries of the restoration of the rule of law. Turchin himself would be court-martialed for the events of May 2, 1862. The pillaging of Athens was, in the words of General Mitchell, quote, a matter of general notoriety, end quote. Mitchell said but little to defend Turchin, his subordinate, remarking, quote, Colonel Turchin has always declared that he did his utmost to prevent his troops from pillaging and from every irregularity. It is certain he has been unsuccessful, end quote. This was not the first incident in Turchin's career during the Civil War, which prompted public outrage and the threat of court-martial from his superiors. From Conciliation to Conquest describes how, one year earlier during the summer of 1861, 
While occupying the bitterly divided state of Missouri, Turchin reined the 19th Illinois down with a heavy hand upon those of the local population considered to be rebels, in order to simultaneously cripple their resources while bolstering the commissary stores with the fresh provisions they were desperately lacking. As the 19th Illinois established its presence in and around the town of Palmyra, Missouri, local citizens began to come within his line seeking refuge. Turchin inquired of them who were the most vocal and ardent secessionists in the community. He discovered that many of the rebel ringleaders had invited him to quarter in their homes, and were simultaneously using their plantations as makeshift rebel training facilities and barracks. Owing to shortages of edible rations for the troops under his command, he determined to extract supplies from the disloyal members of the community. To quote Turchin, quote, As I thought I was duty-bound to take care of the men entrusted to me by the government, it was my business to find food for them. There was plenty of it in the vicinity, the country around Palmyra being rich and the inhabitants disloyal. I ordered my quartermaster to levy upon all the flour and beef the regiment wanted, and to give proper vouchers for everything taken, and let them settle with the government in any way they pleased. It was none of my business what the government would do." End quote. The objective of such a policy was apparently not limited to the sheer necessity of providing food for the army, nor was the confiscation of commissary stores the only result of such raiding. It also had the effect of enacting punishment on those assisting the rebellion and holding their personal property liable to destruction as a means to that end. Turchin organized a group of his forces into a mounted band of cavalry, which he says, quote, the cavalry was rampaging around, striking terror through the country. At the same time, I was sending expeditions of infantry in different directions, accompanying them, some of them myself, wherever plantations were found, with rooms arranged in the shape of barracks for rebel recruits, we would chop all of the bedsteads and cots to splinters, tear blankets and sheets, scatter feathers from pillows, and burn mattresses. Then we would take meat out of the smokehouses and flour from the closets." End quote. Turchin apparently found such tactics quite successful and fruitful in their results. However, it quickly earned the 19th Illinois a notorious reputation among Missourians and in the press, with the Quincy Herald describing them, according to Turchin at least, as, quote, a little horde of barbarians, end quote. Nor was the outrage limited to the civilian sector. Turchin faced sharp backlash from his superiors in the Federal Army, as described in From Conciliation to Conquest. When he defended himself to General Pope, who demanded of him, quote, How dare you take private property for the use of your regiment? How dare you go through the country pilfering, arresting men, and taking possession of horses? End quote. General Pope unequivocally rejected Turchin's tactics, saying, quote, You should starve in your tracks before you touch private property. End quote. And when Pope threatened him with court-martial, Turchin apparently responded, quote, I don't care, end quote. And it is clear he had every intention of ignoring the protests of his ranking superior, whom, as we saw in military rambles, he did not consider competent to give him direction. His actions in Missouri are a stark foreshadowing of the policy that would be enacted in North Alabama a year later.
where plunder and destruction were visited down upon civilians as a means of breaking the psychological will of the rebellion, rather than leading the airing back into the fold with a graceful velvet glove of conciliation. It's clear that such actions went far beyond simply meeting the requirements of drawing supplies for the army, but crossed the line to all-out depredation. However, this time, the threat of court-martial would prove to not be an empty one. Athens was first occupied by men of the 18th Ohio Regiment, under command of Colonel Timothy Stanley on April 29th. By all accounts, its presence was entirely peaceable. From Conciliation to Conquest reports that the mayor of Athens described the soldiers of the 18th Ohio as, quote, unexceptional, and that the citizens were congratulating themselves on having such a quiet and orderly set, end quote. This uneventful occupation was to be short-lived. I described the following event in Episode 9, but I will return to it here because it is crucial in understanding the infamous events which followed, which I previously omitted. On May 1st, gunfire was heard in town, approaching from the west on the Florence-Athens Road. Skirmishers were thrown out to reinforce the pickets and disappeared. Scouts eventually reported a large rebel cavalry force of several hundred men and two pieces of artillery rapidly cl closing in. Soon, Colonel Stanley became alarmed and vacillated as to the proper course of action. It seems he lost his nerve. General Mitchell described the situation in a report we have previously encountered. Quote, a dash was made at Colonel Stanley, whose regiment was guarding bridges on the Athens and Decatur Road by a detachment of cavalry said to be from Florence. They attacked the guards at one or two bridges and finally the pickets of the main body at Athens. Two companies were ordered out and skirmished with the cavalry an hour or two, the cavalry retreating, until finally the enemy opened fire with three small brass field pieces, believed now to have been mounted in country wagons. This alarmed Colonel Stanley and he ordered his train of wagons to leave at once, and followed with what force he had at the town, leaving his tents and camp equipage to be captured by the enemy." End quote. From Conciliation to Conquest describes how, as Colonel Stanley's forces skedaddled out of Athens, the ladies in the town waved their handkerchiefs farewell as a sardonic display of mockery. There were shouts of jeers and insults from the crowd adding to the fray. In the confusion were born rumors that citizens fired upon the retreating federal soldiers from windows of private residences in the town, rumors which originated from Stanley's own testimony. The authors of From Conciliation to Conquest would not have the blame for riling the soldiers up to a violent fever pitch solely laid at the feet of Colonel Turchin. They describe how, enraged by the events of May 1st, General Mitchell, from his headquarters at the train depot in Huntsville, roused the reinforcements departing by rail with heady and inflammatory oratory. Quoting here from Conciliation to Conquest, Quote, the commanding general was already notoriously angry about earlier guerrilla attacks in the region. Embarking soldiers gathered into an audience. Nothing was more natural to Mitchell than flights of oratory, and in the heat of the moment he shouted in order to leave not a grease spot at Athens. Apparently liking the sound of the phrase, he repeated it. Drive the Confederates into the river, he told the troops on a westbound train, annihilate them. 
Hearing a report that two soldiers from the 18th had been killed, he announced to all present, I will build a monument to these two men on the side of Athens. I have dealt gently long enough with these people. I will try another course now. Captain Knowlton Chandler of the 19th Illinois came to the conclusion that Mitchell intended that we should clear things out generally. The captain would have no qualms about seeing to it. End quote. The embarrassing retreat from Athens and the open hostility of its inhabitants to the fleeing men had the effect of flaring tempers and turning up the heat of passions to an unrestrainable level. It was certainly not Turgeon alone, nor those under his command, who could be blamed for the rapidly vengeful mood which took hold of the 3rd Division. Yet it would be Turchin's 8th Brigade on the forefront of the fallout and saddled with the blame when the dust settled and cooler heads got around to requiring justice. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll examine the findings of Turchin's court-martial, which paint a vivid picture of the debauchery his men committed that morning in Athens, and we'll explore how guilt in the courtroom did not necessarily equal guilt in the press. Please stay with us. By order of General Buell, the court convened at Athens at 10 a.m. on July 7, 1862. The senior officer on the court was future president, then Brigadier General James A. Garfield. The findings of the court-martial are published in the Official Records, Volume 16, Part 2, from pages 273 to 278. The evidence gathered paints a shocking picture of destruction, violence, and disgraceful conduct on the part of the 19th Illinois directed against the civilian population of the city of Athens, Alabama. From conciliation to conquest gives many details of the escalating events of the morning of Friday, May 2nd, but I'm going to read at length instead from the findings of the court-martial. There are a multitude of instances recorded in the official records which entered into evidence against Turchin. Pay special attention to the careful language used in describing the shocking acts of the soldiers and the vivid descriptions offered to detail the abuses. Be aware that some of the incidents described here may be triggering for some listeners, and I advise discretion if you might be sensitive to such topics. The first official charge against Colonel Turchin was, quote, neglect of duty to the prejudice of good order and military discipline, end quote, for which the court submitted the following evidence. Quote, the said Colonel J.B. Turchin of the 19th Regiment, Illinois Volunteers, being in command of the 8th Brigade, Army of the Ohio, did, on or about the second day of May, 1862, marched the said brigade into the town of Athens, state of Alabama, and having had the arms of the regiment stacked in the streets, did allow his command to disperse, and in his presence, or with his knowledge, and that of his officers, to plunder and pillage the inhabitants of said town, and of the country adjacent thereto, without taking adequate steps to restrain them. Among the incidents of said plundering and pillaging are the following. A party entered the dwelling of Millie Ann Clayton and opened all the trunks, drawers, and boxes of every description, and, taking out the contents thereof, consisting of wearing apparel and bedclothes, 
destroyed, spoiled, or carried away the same. They also insulted the said Millie Ann Clayton and threatened to shoot her, and then, proceeding to the kitchen, they there attempted an indecent outrage on the person of her servant girl. A squad of soldiers went to the office of R.C. David and plundered it of about $1,000 in money and of much wearing apparel, and destroyed a stock of books, among which was a lot of fine Bibles and Testaments, which were torn, defaced, and kicked about the floor and trampled underfoot. A party of this command entered a house occupied by two females, M. E. Malone and S. B. Malone, and ransacked it throughout, carrying off the money which they found, and also the jewelry, plate, and female ornaments of value and interest to the owners, and destroying and spoiling the furniture of said house without cause. For six or eight hours that day, squads of soldiers visited the dwelling house of Thomas S. Malone, breaking open his desk and carrying off or destroying valuable papers, notes of hand, and other property, to the value of about $4,500 more or less, acting rudely and violently towards the females of the family. This last was done chiefly by the men of Edgartoff's battery. The plundering of saddles, bridles, blankets, etc. was by the 37th Indiana Volunteers. This same party plundered the drug store of William D. Allen, destroying completely a set of surgical, obstetrical, and dental instruments, or carrying them away. The store of Madison Thompson was broken open and plundered of a stock of goods worth about $3,000, and his stable was entered, and corn, oats, and fodder taken by different parties, who, on his application for receipts, replied that they gave receipts at other places, but intended that this place should support them, or words to that effect. The office of J. F. Lowell was broken open, and a fine microscope and many geological specimens, together with many surgical instruments and books, carried off or destroyed. Squads of soldiers, with force of arms, entered the private residence of John F. Malone, and forced open all the locks of the doors, broke open all the drawers to the bureaus, the secretary, sideboard, wardrobes, and the trunks of the house, and rifled through them of their contents, consisting of valuable clothing, silverware, silver plate jewelry, a gold watch and chain, etc., and in performing these outrages they used coarse, vulgar, and profane language to the females of the family. These squads came in large numbers and plundered the house thoroughly. They also broke open the law office of said Malone and destroyed his safe and damaged his books. A part of this brigade went to the plantation of the above-named Malone and quartered in the Negro huts for weeks, debauching the females and roaming with the males over their surrounding country to plunder and pillage. A mob of soldiers burst open the doors and windows of the business houses of Samuel Tanner, Jr., and plundered them of their contents, consisting of sugar, coffee, boots and shoes, leather, and other merchandise. Very soon after the command entered the town, a party of soldiers broke into the silversmith shop and jewelry store owned by D. H. Friend, and plundered it of its contents and valuables to the amount of $3,000. A party of this command entered the house of E. S. Irwin, and ordered his wife to cook dinner for them, and while she and her servant were so engaged, they made the most indecent and beastly propositions to the latter in the presence of the whole family, and when the girl went away, they followed her in the same manner, notwithstanding her efforts to avoid them. 
Miss Hollinsworth's house was entered and plundered of clothing and other property by several parties, and some of the men fired into the house and threatened to burn it, and used violent and insulting language toward the said Miss Hollinsworth. The alarm and excitement occasioned miscarriage, and subsequently her death. Several soldiers came to the house of Miss Charlotte Hine, and committed rape on the person of a colored girl, and then entered the house and plundered it of all the sugar, coffee, preserves, and the like which they could find. Before leaving, they destroyed or carried off all the pictures and ornaments they could lay their hands on. A mob of soldiers filled the house of J. A. Cox, broke open his iron safe, destroyed and carried off papers of value, plundering the house thoroughly, carrying off the clothes of his wife and children. Some soldiers broke into the brick store of P. Tanner and Sons, and destroyed or carried off nearly the entire stock of goods contained there, and broke open the safe, and took about two thousand dollars in money and many valuable papers. A party of soldiers, at the order of Captain Edderton, broke into an office through the windows and doors and plundered it of its contents, consisting of bedding, furniture, and wearing apparel. Lieutenant Berwick was also with the party. This officer was on the ground. The law office of William Richardson, which was in another part of the town, was rifled completely, and many valuable papers, consisting of bonds, bills, and notes of hand, lost or destroyed. The house of J. H. Jones was entered by Colonel Mihalotzi of the 24th Illinois Volunteers, who behaved rudely and coarsely to the ladies of the family. He then quartered two companies of infantry in the house. About one hour after Captain Edderton quartered his artillery company in the parlors, and these companies plundered the house of all provisions and clothing they could lay their hands on, and spoiled the furniture and carpets maliciously and without a shadow of reason, spoiling the parlor carpets by cutting bacon on them, and the piano by chopping joints on it with an axe, the beds by sleeping in them with their muddy boots on. The library of the house was destroyed, and the locks of the bureaus, secretaries, wardrobes, and trunks were all forced and their contents pillaged. The family plate was carried off, but some of the pieces have been recovered. The store of George B. Peck was entered by a large crowd of soldiers and stripped of its contents, and the iron safe broken open and its contents plundered, consisting of $940.90 and $4,000 worth of notes. John Turrentine's store was broken into by a party of soldiers on that day, and an iron safe cut open, belonging to the same, and about $5,000 worth of notes of hand taken or destroyed. These men destroyed about $200 worth of books found in said store, consisting of law books, religious books, and reading books generally. End quote. In addition to these incidents, the SCC contains claims of damages committed by Turchin's brigade, one claimant, James Danforth, owned a grocery store that was looted on the morning of May 2nd. He claimed just over $1,000 worth of stolen property, including boxes of soap, candles, spices like pepper and ginger, a cooking stove, 2,000 pounds of flour, 80 gallons of molasses, and even cream of tartar and citric acid. His claim for these items was rejected on the basis that their taking was unauthorized, the unlawful act of depredations. The SCC did not pay for items unless they were lawfully seized for official army use. Another claimant was George Grigsby. 
He was enslaved in 1862. He had a mule his so-called master gave to him. The mule was sick, and Mr. Grigsby was allowed to keep him as his own if he could nurse him back to health, which he did. Turchin's men took his mule and eventually forced him to work for the army. Mr. Grigsby explained, quote, They kept us at work eight days. They dismissed us and took my mule because he was the best one. I went to General Turchin and told him that they had taken my mule. He asked me what I asked for him. I told him about two hundred dollars. About a hundred soldiers came out of town and pressed in all the colored men they could get to work on the fortifications. End quote. Mr. Grigsby did receive con compensation for the mule, though only two-thirds of what he asked for it. He was never compensated for his labor. The next charges against Turchin were, quote, conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman, and disobedience of orders, end quote, to which the court submitted the following specifications, that he, quote, did remain one week more or less as a guest in a public house in the town of Athens, and did fail to pay his bill for board, and did fail to compensate in any way the landlord of said hotel, J.B. Davison, although applied to once or oftener by said landlord for payment of said board, end quote, and that he, quote, did permit or did fail to make any reasonable and proper effort to prevent the disgraceful behavior of the troops under his command, end quote. The specific orders that Turchin was charged with disobeying refers to General Buell's Order No. 13A, issued on the 26th of February as Buell's Army of the Ohio first entered Nashville, which was a statement of his policy regarding the treatment of civilians in the occupied seceded states. The text of this order very poignantly captures the exuberantly optimistic and rather naive spirit of the policy of conciliation, as the first Union forces planted the stars and stripes in hostile territory and began to put the Lincoln administration's policy into practice in the real world. The text of General Orders 13a goes as follows. Quote, the general commanding congratulates his troops that it has been their privilege to restore the national banner to the capital of Tennessee. He believes that thousands of hearts in every part of the state will swell with joy to see that honored flag reinstated in a position from which it was removed in the excitement and folly of an evil hour, that the voice of her own people will soon proclaim its welcome, and that their manhood and patriotism will protect and perpetuate the general does not deem it necessary, though the occasion is a fit one, to remind his troops of the rule of conduct they have hitherto observed and are still to pursue. We are in arms, not for the purpose of invading the rights of our fellow countrymen anywhere, but to maintain the integrity of the Union and protect the Constitution under which its people have been prosperous and happy. We cannot, therefore, look with indifference on any conduct which is designed to give aid and comfort to those who are endeavoring to defeat these objects. But the action to be taken in such cases rests with certain authorized persons, and is not to be assumed by individual officers or soldiers." End quote. And then comes the specific sentence which the court-martial charged Colonel Turchin with disobeying. Quote, Peaceable citizens are not to be molested in their persons or property. Any wrongs to either are to be promptly corrected and the offenders brought to punishment. 
To this end, all persons are desired to make complaint to the immediate commander of officers or soldiers so offending, and if justice be not done promptly, then to the next commander, and so on, until the wrong is redressed. If the necessities of the public service should require the use of private property for public purposes, fair compensation is to be allowed. No such appropriation of private property is to be made except by the authority of the highest commander present, and any other officer or soldier who shall presume to exercise such privilege shall be brought to trial. Soldiers are forbidden to enter the residences or grounds of citizens on any plea without authority." End quote. It was clear from the evidence that Turchin's men had violated this policy, both in the letter and in spirit. The court explained that he, quote, did permit his men to disperse and leave the ranks and colors and molest peaceable citizens in their persons and property, and did fail to correct these wrongs or bring the offenders to punishment, end quote. And furthermore, he did Quote, permit the officers and soldiers of his command to take provisions, forage, and other private property from the citizens of said town and country around the same for the public services, and did fail to have fair compensation allowed to the owners of said property, either by money or by official vouchers in due form. End quote. He also, quote, without adequate necessity, caused to be taken from the inhabitants of the town of Athens, Alabama, and the surrounding country provisions, forage, and draft animals, end quote. General Buell's Orders No. 13A shed light upon Buell's attitude regarding indiscipline in his army, especially which resulted in the southern population being unduly strained or inconvenienced by the Federal Army's presence, and sheds light on what General Buell's attitude would have been regarding the actions of Colonel Turchin and his brigade. Quote, the general reminds his officers that the most frequent depredations are those which are committed by worthless characters, who straggle from the ranks on the plea of being unable to march, and where the inability really exists, it will be found in most instances that the soldier has overloaded himself with useless and unauthorized articles. The orders already published on this subject must be enforced. The condition and behavior of a corps are sure indications of the efficiency and fitness of its officers. If any regiment shall be found to disregard the, that propriety of conduct which belongs to soldiers as well as citizens, they must not expect to occupy the posts of honor, but may rest assured that they will be placed in positions where they cannot bring shame on their comrades and the cause they are engaged in. The government supplies with liberality all the wants of the soldier. The occasional deprivations and hardships incident to rapid marches must be borne with patience and fortitude. Any officer who neglects to provide properly for his troops or separates himself from them to seek his own comfort will be held to a rigid accountability. End quote. The court adjourned on July 20th, 1862. In total, there were ten separate charges made against Colonel Turchin. He pleaded guilty to only one, namely that he allowed his wife to stay in camp with him. The court found him guilty for all but two of the charges, i.e. failing to pay the bill for the lodging house where he quartered and taking the forage and draft animals without adequate necessity. 
the court sentenced him to be dismissed from the service of the United States. Six of the members, however, quote, recommended the prisoner to clemency on the ground that the offense was committed under exciting circumstances and was one rather of omission than of commission. The general commanding has felt constrained, nevertheless, to carry the sentence into effect, end quote. The report of the proceedings then ends with an epilogue of sorts by General Buell. Quote, Colonel Turchin was tried for the disorderly conduct of his command at and in the vicinity of Athens, and the sentence of the court rests on that matter alone. But on the question of clemency, it is proper to look beyond the record of the court. It is a fact of sufficient notoriety that similar disorders, though not to the same extent, have marked the course of Colonel Turchin's command wherever it has gone. The question is not whether private property must be used for the public service, for that is proper whenever the public interest demands it. It should then be done by authority, and in an orderly way, the wanton and lawless indulgence of individuals in acts of plunder and outrage is a different matter, tending to the demoralization of the troops and the destruction of their efficiency. Such conduct does not mean vigorous warfare, it means disgrace and disaster, and is punished with the greatest severity in all armies. The circumstances under which the disorders were committed were precisely those which demanded the strictest observance of discipline. The command was supposed to be in the presence of an enemy that might take advantage of any confusion in its ranks. Every man should have been at his post, instead of roaming over the town and country to load himself with useless plunder. In point of fact, the criminality is not so much that good order was violated on the particular occasion as that by the habitual neglect of discipline the orders of the commander were unavailing at a time when the observance of it might have been of vital importance. Colonel Turchin had been in command of the 8th Brigade for five months and is fairly responsible for a state of discipline which has done injustice to the four fine regiments of which it was composed. The general inspected those regiments more than once about the time of the organization of the brigade. There were none in the army from which he expected better service, and he still has confidence that they will realize those expectations." End quote. Curiously, by the time the news had broken about the events at Athens and the court-martial was in session, Colonel Turchin was up for promotion. His name had been submitted to Congress for the post of Brigadier General. His vigorous, if controversial, treatment of the rebellious Southerners had earned him a favorable reputation among the most hard-line members of the Republican Party in the Midwest. Now, even as he faced court-martial, his vigor was to be rewarded. Buell wrote to the Secretary of War, aghast, from Huntsville on June 29th, quote, As I hear the promotion of Colonel Turchin is contemplated, I feel my duty to inform you that he is entirely unfit for it. I placed him in command of a brigade, and now find it necessary to relieve him from it in consequence of his utter failure to enforce discipline and render it efficient, end quote. The notoriety of the events of May 2nd were widespread. A prominent Unionist and native of Athens was Judge George Washington Lane. He had been appointed judge to the United States District Court for North Alabama by President Lincoln in 1861, and gave testimony to the Buell Commission about conditions in North Alabama during the summer of 1862. General Buell asked him during the cross-examination, 
Have you a general knowledge of the fact that depredations to a very considerable extent were committed by government troops in various places in North Alabama in the spring and summer of 1862 and prior to my arrival at Huntsville? If so, please state what effect was produced upon the temper of the people and their sentiments toward the Union by those depredations. End quote. After many objections were raised and debated, Judge Lane was directed to answer what he knew from his own personal knowledge. Judge Lane testified, quote, I have a knowledge that there were general rumors that there had been various depredations committed. I might say that I got that information from General Mitchell himself and from various officers belonging to the different corps d'armée under his control. I will go further and state that I was upon terms of the utmost intimacy with General Mitchell, and so far from having any disposition to do injustice to his memory, I would say that I have known few men for whom I have had higher regard. As a matter of course, those depredations that were charged to have been committed did produce some bad effect against the Federal Army. End quote. Judge Lane Rather remarkably, states that shortly after General Mitchell's arrival in Huntsville, he, as a prominent loyal citizen, had a meeting with him and was able to advise him on policy, specifically the policy of conciliation. He says Mitchell asked for advice, to which he says, quote, I have vanity enough to believe that the advice I gave him influenced his course of action. I could explain to the court what predicated the advice that was given. North Alabama had always been a Union state. The elections had taken place on the north side of the river, in which there had been an overwhelming demonstration, perhaps five Union votes to one secession, and I gave it to General Mitchell as my opinion that there was a Union sentiment, and that the sentiment should be fostered by a conciliatory course of conduct, and General Mitchell set out with the determination to pursue that policy. But I must say that my experience there convinced me that I was perhaps mistaken. No good came from the conciliatory policy. No good has since resulted from it, and I have seen fit to change my views on that subject. I advised General Mitchell to pursue this course, that there should be no discrimination made, that it should not be known who were and who were not secessionists, that contributions should be levied on all alike. But I think now that if the Union men knew that they were to be protected while the burdens should fall alone upon the secessionists, it would have made the Union men more decided. Sharing the burdens with the secessionists, I think, had an unfavorable effect." End quote. General Buell then asked him for a clarification. Quote, Do I understand you to say that the depredations that were committed at Athens and other places ought to have been approved by General Mitchell? That the effect of such approval or the encouragement of such depredations would have strengthened the cause of the Union among the people? End quote. To which Judge Lane responded, quote, by no means, I did not so intend to be understood. On the contrary, I intended it to be understood that these depredations did excite and inflame the people against the federal cause. I intended to say that the conciliatory policy pursued by General Mitchell, being extended alike to secessionists and Union men, did not produce the good effect upon the Union men that I had hoped. End quote. General Buell then asked pointedly, quote, was it a matter of notoriety that depredations similar to those committed at Athens were committed at various other points in North Alabama and perhaps also in Tennessee on the borders of North Alabama? End quote. Judge Lane did not mince words. Quote, 
It was notorious that there had been depredations committed at various places, but none of so flagrant a character as those committed at Athens. End quote. News of the events at Athens had spread beyond North Alabama, first to the Ohio River Valley and to the home states of the soldiers involved, especially Illinois and Ohio, then across the country and the English-speaking world. Newspaper articles tended to emphasize, somewhat exaggerating, the loyal sentiment in the town of Athens and how the treatment they received at the hands of the federal soldiers amounted to a betrayal. Here, quoting from the Weekly California News of California, Missouri, dated July 19, 1862, under the headline, A Horrible Story. Quote, the correspondent of the Louisville Democrat sends the following in reference to the conduct of General Turchin's soldiers in Athens, Alabama. General Turchin said to his soldiers that he would shut his eyes for two hours and let them loose upon the town and citizens of Athens, the very same citizens who, when all the rest of their state was disloyal, nailed the national colors to the highest pinnacle of their courthouse cupola. These citizens, yet to a wonderful degree true to their allegiance, had their houses and stores broken open and robbed of everything valuable and what was too unwieldy to be transported easily, broken or otherwise ruined. Safes were forced open and rifled of thousands of dollars, wives and mothers insulted, and husbands and fathers arrested if they dared to murmur, horses and negroes taken in large numbers, ladies were robbed of all their wearing apparel except what they had on. In a word, every outrage committed and every excess indulged in that that ever was heard of by a most savage and brutal soldiery towards a defenseless and alarmed population, all, too, by those who pretended to represent the United States government. This is an everlasting disgrace that can never be wiped from the page of history, but which demands immediate and prompt action, and the execration of all lovers of law and good government. The good of the service and the character of every Union soldier cries for the punishment without mercy of such disgraceful conduct. End quote. Turchin was defended by the influential Chicago Tribune, whose editors, according to From Conciliation to Conquest, were largely instrumental in securing his appointment, and hugely influential within the Republican Party. Theirs was an enormous readership, and their editorial pronouncements quite literally could sway the results of elections. Their approbation was essential. In this article from July 15th, Turchin is praised for the way he handled the prosecution of the war, while Buell, in contrast, is lambasted. Quote, Colonel Turchin has had from the beginning the wisest and clearest ideas of any man in the field about the way in which this war should be conducted, and it is the appreciation of these that has caused the action on the part of his superiors that compels his resignation. He believes, and as far as he has been permitted to, has acted upon the belief that the people of the South are enemies and are to be treated as such, that their pretended property in men exists by no law that he is bound to respect, and that they should be compelled as far as possible to defray the expenses of the campaign. Notions like these, when they take the visible form of deeds, have, of course, brought down upon his head and upon his gallant regiment the wrath of the generals, whose whole object seems to be to hunt the inwards 
of rebel masters and to guard secesh onion patches and chicken coops. Of those, Don Carlos Buell is one of the most notorious. Don Carlos, whose acts have earned for him among the rebels wherever he has been the appellation the Friend of the South. He, it is, who has sent the 19th and 24th, two of our Chicago regiments, to the rear, stripped Colonel Turchin of his brigade, and put him and his men, than whom there are no better, to the task of guarding a railroad. We respectfully ask the President to take notice of this case, and if it proves to be now, as now stated, to put the gentleman with the pretentious Spanish name into the ranks, and cause his shoulder straps to be stitched to, to Turchin's coat. The latter is far the best soldier of the two, and what is of quite as much importance, he believes in war, that Don Carlos don't." End quote. It is quite fascinating to note the shift in public opinion regarding Buell, whom the Tribune described as snail-like only weeks before his ouster in October, and the policy of conciliation. Turchin may well have been convicted in the court-martial, but Buell would be convicted in the court of public opinion. And it would be Buell, not Turchin, who would end the year 1862 decommissioned, and with it his entire participation in the war, while Turchin would fight on, heroic at Chickamauga and in Sherman's Atlanta campaign. Nevertheless, notwithstanding the Tribune's dutiful defense of Turchin, public reaction to the sordid events of May 2nd generally were not favorable. On October 31st, 1862, the scandals within the Army of the Ohio were printed in the newspaper The Age of Melbourne, Australia, taken from the testimony of one Colonel J.S. Norton, 21st Ohio. Norton provides a long laundry list of malfeasance, most of which he lays to the charge of General Mitchell. He does state, quote, I charge Colonel Turchin and the officers and soldiers under his command with having committed outrages and depredations upon the people of Limestone County and the county west to Tuscumbia, contrary to the printed orders of General Buell. I charge that they have plundered houses, taken from them ladies wearing apparel, gentlemen's clothing, and have broken furniture and windows, broken locks of drawers, and destroyed everything in and about various premises. I charge them with committing rape upon servant girls in the presence of their mistresses, and stripping rings from ladies' fingers, cutting bacon upon parlor carpets, piling meat upon pianos, and being quartered in houses when they should have been quartered in their tents, robbing citizens upon the highways, breaking open safes and stores, breaking jars, and everything generally in drug stores in two or three instances. They have also taken away horses, mules, buggies, and harness. I further state that General Mitchell knew of these things, that I took written statements to him on two occasions, that I introduced committees of citizens to him for the purpose of getting some redress for these grievances or a cessation of them, that he paid no attention to them, or rather failed to stop the depredations up to the time the brigade was ordered to march to another section of the country." End quote. Coincidentally, the same day this article was printed in Melbourne, General Mitchell died of yellow fever in Beaufort, South Carolina. His reputation was destined to be overshadowed by other players on the scene who would live out the war, such that he is barely known today. This was the story that was to be told, and how the sacking of Athens would pass into memory. 
It marked a shift in the public's perception, especially in the North, of the character of the warfare that had taken shape. In the aftermath of the horrors of Shiloh, coddling the slaveocracy became increasingly unpopular, until, finally, with the dawning of the new year, 1863, the extinction of slavery itself would finally become an expressed purpose of the Union War effort. Conciliation to slaveholders was over. Join me next time as we discuss the end of the year 1862, the hardships faced here in the Shoals due to the strain of a war entering its second year, and the systematic retaking of the ground lost by General Buell, which brought the war front right back to the doorstep of the Tennessee Valley. And thanks so much for joining me.